we're, we're going to do something a little bit different today. For those of you that have been here for the last uh, number of months, know that we are working through a sermon series on the book of Acts. And we finished Acts chapter 8. We've just been going chapter by chapter through that book, and we're planning to finish the book. But we talked about when I introduced the whole series that there is going to be a few times in the series that we are going to take a break from the book of Acts. And so we are actually going to be taking a break now for the next two months. And starting in January, we're going to go back into Acts and we'll start chapter 9 of Acts. What's going to happen for the next couple of months is after this Sunday, I'm going to be doing a four-week series on Christian foundations. We're going to look at the Apostles' Creed, we're going to look at the Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, and then we're going to be looking at Baptism and Communion, kind of those catechism-type uh, elements that uh, happen in some other churches. So that's going to be the next four weeks. And then after that, it's Christmas. We're going to do a Christmas series. And then come uh, January, we'll be back in the book of Acts. And so that's what is going to be happening in the next couple of months. Today is kind of a one-off sermon that is a little bit different. I have been asked in about two weeks from now to speak at a Christian high school on the topic of faith and science. And I have been asked to give a theological perspective and framework on that. And then after I'm done, it's going to be followed by a physics professor from Trinity University here who is going to be talking on the same subject. He's also a Christian, and he's going to be talking about it from the science perspective. And so I kind of cheated, and I kind of double-dipped this week. And that was, I was thinking to myself, okay, when am I going to find time to write the message for that in the midst of also writing the messages for this, And then as I was counting up the weeks, I said, you know what? This sermon series actually works four weeks and then Christmas and then I kind of have a free week in here. I'm going to do a two for one. And so you get the preview. I'm going to do that message today that I'm going to be doing in a couple of weeks for these high school students um, at this school that I will be speaking at. So today's a bit more of a theological sermon. We're not going to be like in the book of Acts, working through a chapter of the Bible, but looking at this whole idea of faith and science, which is so relevant for all of us, and particularly for our high school students and for those in university, where sometimes these things become at loggerheads with one another. So let's uh, begin this morning. He looked through his telescope again, and he checked his charts over again, and he knew what the evidence was saying. It appeared obvious to him. And that was that the earth is not stationary, but was moving. And not only was the earth moving, as in like spinning like a top, uh, but the earth was also moving around the sun. Now, of course, it appeared the other way. Anybody that just looked into the sky and looked at what seemed obvious from their perspective, know, knew that the sun obviously rose in the morning in the east, and it went across the sky and traveled, and then it lowered down, and in the evening it set in the west. Didn't that, that prove just by obvious logic that it was the sun going around the earth, and that the earth was stationary? So people started to wonder what kind of devilry was behind this telescope thing? What kind of devilry were, were people looking at and seeing that seemed to contradict basic logic and common sense? 
Also, it seemed like witchcraft because it was contradicting theology. It had already been theologically established that the earth was the center of the universe. I mean, it makes sense. The earth was God's crown and glory of his creation where he put humanity to be those who governed his very creation on the earth. The earth was the center of it all. How could somebody look through some weird contraption and say that the earth wasn't the center and that the sun was the center? And then some people were even saying that the earth wasn't even not just the center, but the earth was one of several planets that circled this sun. These telescopes were deceiving people as directly contradicting common sense, directly contradicting theology, and worst of all, there were many that were saying that these telescopes were contradicting Scripture. Anyone who could read could pick up the Bible and understand the plain, literal reading of what the Bible said about the solar system. All you had to do was turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1 where it says the sun rises and the sun sets and it hurries back to where it rises. Or you could go to Psalm 19 and it says there clearly in the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of its chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run its course. And then it says, it rises at one end of the heavens, it makes its circuit to the other, and nothing is deprived of its warmth. I mean, how could that be any clearer? Common sense, theology, the Bible, they're all saying the same thing. How could some guy look through a contraption and see and say that all of this is wrong? Not only does the Bible say that the sun rises and sets, but it also says that it does it from one end of the heavens to the other. The sun goes from all the heavens, and also it says that nothing is deprived of the sun's warmth. How could someone say that there are places in the galaxy where it is not being warmed by the sun when the Bible clearly says that everything is warmed by the sun? To say such things is to blaspheme the God of Scripture. And so the war began. Science on the side of witchcraft and faith on the side of the church. So that in 1615, concerned monks from St. Mark's Covenant wrote a letter to the church authorities about the telescope man by the name of Galileo. And in their letter to the church authorities, they said this, We feel that his works contain many statements which seem presumptuous or suspect. As when it states that the words of Holy Scripture do not mean what they say. These people are taking it upon themselves to expound the Holy Scripture according to their private lights and in a manner different from the common interpretation of the fathers of the church. And so 18 years later on June 22, 1623, Galileo was found in the words of the church as vehemently suspect of heresy for holding opinions that the earth is not at the center and moves. 
and that one may hold and defend this opinion as probable after it has been declared contrary to Holy Scripture. Galileo was then put into prison and had all of his works banned by the church. Which, by the way, is usually a good thing for your works. They become more popular when that happens. But that's an aside. Now, the story of Galileo has, has often been told as the picture of the war between faith and science. And although it is a good story, and it does illustrate that, and it does illustrate the battle that we often have created, it is also a story that we have to be careful of. Because when it is told in this simple way, it also misses other parts of the story that are a lot more complicated. As we all know, life is a lot more complicated than just a a simple storyline like this. Now, despite some obvious mistakes that the church has made, like the Galileo incident, uh, like what happened in the 1925 Scopes monkey trial regarding evolution... The church's approach to science and science's approach to faith is actually much more nuanced than these polar warring heads. Outside of what I guess you could call fundamentalist circles on the Christian side, so like the likes of maybe a Ken Ham, or fundamentalist circles on the atheistic side, the likes of like a Richard Dawkins, who kind of really dig in and are really you know, not nuanced at all, reality is actually not that simplistic. And where the church has made mistakes, as it has in the past, when the church has recognized those mistakes, the church has also acknowledged and apologized. In 1992, Pope John Paul II said these words of Galileo. He said, thanks to his intuition... As a brilliant physicist, and by relying on different arguments, Galileo practically invented the experimental method that we use today. The error of the theologians of the time when they maintained the centrality of the earth was to think that our understanding of the physical world structure was in some way imposed by a literal sense of the Bible. Pope John Paul's uh, successor, Pope uh, Benedict XVI, even stated it stronger in 2008 when he said the 7th century uh, church's view on Galileo offend and humiliate us today. As scientists who are loyal to reason and as teachers who have dedicated our lives to the advance and dissemination of knowledge. And even in the 17th century, Not all church theologians went along with the church's condemning of Galileo. Many of the uh, church leaders agreed with Galileo's teaching, as some disagreed with it, and there was much debate. As you will notice from my telling of the story, when I first mentioned the letter that was written to the church by those monks in the convent, from that letter to the time that Galileo was condemned was 18 years Anything but an impulsive, anti-intellectual, knee-jerk reaction by the church. It was staunchly debated within the church. With people on both sides of the argument. Eventually the church came down on the wrong side of this. And then later acknowledged it. 
but not the caricature that is often presented. And on the flip side, the same as with science. Galileo, representing the science side, never saw his findings as a contradiction of faith. Galileo himself was a strong believer in God and also a strong believer in the authority of Scripture. Galileo even denied that there should be a war between faith and science by saying God is known by nature in his works and by doctrine in his revealed word. Just as today, many Christian scientists and theologians agree with the finding of evolution without seeing it as a conflict with Scripture. I myself, I don't really know where I land on this topic yet, but I certainly know there are many solid Bible-believing teachers of the likes of Tim Keller, Philip Yancey, John Stott, John Ortberg, Francis Collins, John Walton, N.T. Wright, and C.S. Lewis that all take an evolutionary perspective, obviously a theistic God was involved in the whole process, see it as having no conflict with Scripture. Even Billy Graham himself said, I don't think that there's any conflict at all between science and Scripture. I think that we have misinterpreted the Scriptures many times, and we've tried to make the Scriptures say things they weren't meant to say. I think that we have made a mistake by thinking the Bible is a scientific book. The Bible is not a book of science. The Bible is a book of redemption. I believe that God created man, and whether it came by an evolutionary process, and at a certain point he took this person or being and made him a living soul or not, does not change the fact that God did create man whichever way God did it. Those are Billy Graham's words. Alistair McGrath, who in in many ways is the epitome of, of someone who has shown that science and faith do not conflict, even by the fact that Alistair McGrath has doctorates in both molecular biophysics and historic and systematic theology, um, and has humongous credentials in both those fields as well. He writes in his new book on Einstein that just came out a month ago, that an integral aspect of Einstein's identity was that he repeatedly emphasized the importance of holding science and religion together. And so the spin that has often been given in pop culture, that faith and science are at odds with one another, just simply doesn't hold up to the facts. The church is always engaged with science. And often very intellectually, yes, the church has been wrong at times. And then has had to acknowledge when it has been wrong. And scientists like Galileo and even Einstein and many others have often engaged in faith as well. Again, the spin that faith and science are at odds with one another usually come from either ignorant people or from people with a certain agenda. And it's unfortunate that many of our journalists and even some of our professors at different schools tend to be somewhat either ignorant or have an agenda on these issues. Because once again, the reality is more nuanced. The reality is much more complicated. 
And the middle ground where most thoughtful people actually are, they just don't make the, thoughtful people don't usually make the headlines because they don't spout off really stupid things and make those kinds of things that make headlines. But most people, more of the thoughtful people, tend to be more in the middle somewhere, much more balanced. And this is usually where the truth lies. See, science and theology are different disciplines, just as sports and art are different disciplines. And and where we go wrong is when we try to make each discipline do something that it is not intending to do. So think about trying to to paint a picture by taking slap shots of cans of paint against a canvas. I mean, it kind of doesn't work. I'm sure someone's tried it. And I'm sure someone would claim that that's art. But you've got two different disciplines, uh, athletics and and art. And taking slap shots of paint against a canvas is not really what either of those disciplines are meant to be for. They are two different disciplines. And the discipline of science and faith are different disciplines as well. They can certainly speak to each other, and they should. But they also need to recognize the limits of what they can speak to. I need less to come up at this time and uh, give me some water, but I'll do it myself. Thanks, Les. <clears throat> See ya. Now, so, so what are these disciplines? The discipline of science is to record observable facts through experimentation and examination. And it's important that we understand the definitions of this because sometimes we call things science that aren't science. Science, pure science, is recording observable facts through experiments and through observation by looking at things and then writing down what you see and what the results are of what you've been examining. So science can look at things like fossil records. And they can tell you what they find. Uh, Science can look at chemical interactions and tell you what happens when different chemicals come together and and these are the reactions and what takes place. Uh, Science can talk about the behavior of light and and even try to, to figure out what's going on with light. But science cannot interpret the meaning of things. It cannot interpret the meaning of anything beyond cause and effect. It can, it can tell you this happens when this happens and when this ball hits this ball and it moves this way with this much speed. It can tell you that, but it can't tell you why. As soon as we move into the questions of why, we move into a different discipline, the discipline of philosophy or the discipline of theology. Science could say something like this. Science can say our evidence shows that things adapt to environmental changes. When an environment changes, organisms and things adapt to that environmental change. Those things that do adapt survive. Those things that are unable to adapt either go extinct, die, or whatever happens to them. And and, and science can look at that and say, this is just simply what the facts say, that things need to adapt to their environment in order for them to survive. Science, though, cannot then take from that and come up with meanings. Science cannot say, therefore, this means that we should eradicate weaker people from our society. 
That is not something science can say. A philosophy can say that. A bad philosophy, a dangerous philosophy could say something like that. They could say something like that by creating a meaning from the scientific data. But the scientific data alone doesn't say that. It just gives you the facts. From the same data, one could equally create a meaning that says that this means uh, that we need to protect our environment. So that as we protect our environment, we protect certain species from falling into extinction. You could equally come up with that kind of an idea or a philosophy from the scientific data. The data of science just gives you the facts. Philosophy or theology begins to come up with the why question, the meaning question, questions around morality. Proving quote-unquote, philosophical and proving moral conclusions from science is not science. It's scientism. In other words, it's turning science into a religion. It's, it's making science something that it isn't. Making science now a philosophy. And we must always beware of scientism. Because it comes across many times in headlines and in articles as if this is science. Science could say, for instance, science could say we've, we've studied men, we've studied thousands of men, we've looked at testosterone levels and all of that, and we could say that uh, science, by all of this, shows that men have high testosterone levels. Science could show that. That the average man has high testosterone levels. That's, that's simply showing us evidence. Science cannot then move from that and say, therefore science, which I've read articles that have said this, science proves that men are not meant to be monogamous. Because now we're moving into the realm of morality, choices, decisions. Science does not say that because men have high testosterone levels, therefore men are meant to be promiscuous. They are meant to have as many children with as many women that they possibly can. As soon as you go there, you are now moving into the realm of morality, philosophy. In a pure atheistic way, sometimes they will do that. But if you do that and say that that has to happen, we are nothing but mechanisms. We're nothing but one ball hitting another ball, and we've completely taken away our free choice. If science says you have to be this way. The reality is, is even if there is truth scientifically to high testosterone levels, we still make choices. We still decide what we're going to do with our biology. And this is philosophy. Science can't answer that question. And so we need to be careful. This stuff comes up all the time with issues on transgender issues nowadays, on issues of homosexuality, even issues around abortion and euthanasia. On and on we can go where claims are made under the name of science, which are really claims of morality and philosophy using, wrongly, science. Science can just give you data, information. It can't give you the why. On the flip side, we also need to understand the disciplinary limits of theology. 
Scripture addresses the why questions, meaning questions. Why is there something rather than nothing? Science can't answer that. Scripture can. Why is there order to the way things work? Why don't things work in a different way? Why are some things right? Why are some things wrong? Why do things adapt and develop? Why do things want to survive? How are we even consciously having this conversation right now? How are we even rational thinking beings with consciousness? These are, are questions that science can't answer. They are in the realm of theology. They are in the realm of what scripture speaks to. Ironically, since the scientific revolution, we, even in the church, seem to somewhat have forgotten how to read. And that is, all of us, and we have to be aware of the blinders of our culture, all of us have a certain culture that we come from, and sometimes when we think we're just reading purely scripture, like in Galileo's day, we don't realize that we're reading scripture with cultural filters. And the cultural filters that we all have today is the fact that we are in a culture of science. It predominates the way that we think even when we don't realize it. And so often without recognizing it, we have science glasses on. Which has caused us a little bit to forget how to read in any other way other than mathematically. Scientifically. Calculating things. Literally. And in the process of that, we've forgotten how to interpret stories. And poetry and metaphors, and hyperbole, and myth, and simile, and allusion, and allegory, all forms that the Bible is filled with. And we can miss the point when we ram them through a grid of math all the time. We are so scientifically minded that we, we ask really what are kind of nonsense questions to the Bible that the Bible has no concern about. And so uh, we sit around and we're in the early chapters of Genesis and we ask questions like, how did the snake learn how to talk to Eve? And, and, and what kind of fish swallowed Jonah anyway? But see, the biblical writers never wrote these stories to answer those questions. They, they were of no concern to the biblical writers. Does that mean the stories are untrue? Not at all. Humanity really was created by God. It really did rebel against its creator. The consequences of this really did bring chaos and destruction and sin into God's good creation. And God really did promise that he's going to fix all, of the, all things and redeem all things. But sometimes trapped in our scientific minds, we want to know if, are we talking about a literal snake that really talked and then we try to say, if you look at the fossil evidence, uh, does it seem like from fossil evidence that snakes had a, had, a, had a voice box at one time, they had legs, and then they lost their legs, all these types of things, which, again, the Bible's not concerned about. Even though we will never answer that question about the snake through science. Science is unable to reproduce that, to do experiment. We are unable to answer that question from science, but will equally be unable to answer that question from the Bible. 
because the Bible is not concerned. In the early chapters of Genesis, unlike the New Testament, stress on the historical reliability of Jesus' resurrection. I mean, that is stressed so much in the New Testament. And it even uses those words. It talks about eyewitnesses. It talks about touching and seeing. And it talks about the senses. We, we are not talking to you about cleverly invented fairy tales, P- Peter says. The, the New Testament goes out of its way to talk about Jesus and his death and his resurrection as verifiable, observable, scientific, factual, historical something that actually happened. We can choose to agree or disagree with the evidence of the the testimonies of the writers from that time. But the the Old Testament makes no such claims. And that doesn't mean that you you can't believe that it's literal snake that's talking or that you um, don't believe. It's just really saying it doesn't matter. There could be people in the church here today that have different views on that and it's not a That's not a dogma or a doctrine that we should be fighting over because it's not something the writer of Genesis is concerned with. The snake could simply be a literary device. What he's concerned with is the truth of the story. Meaning, remember what the truth of the story means for the scripture, it's the why question, the meaning question, not the science question. The New Testament writer is concerned with the truth of the story in regards to why. Why is there sin in this world? Why do we seem to be constantly at odds with God? Why is there rebellion between between us and, and one another? Why? In the same way with the psalm I quoted earlier, when the writer says, In the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chambers. He is, uh, we have to ask, what's the author trying to do? When the author says that in the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun, he's not trying to give us a scientific definition to say, well, the heavens are actually formed in the form of a triangle and that every angle is the same and if you add up the uh, angles of the triangle, that's the dimensions of the universe. He's not doing that. He's not writing science. He's writing something else. He's trying to tell us that God put everything in its proper place. That God's in ultimate control. That God has given us seasons and time. That God has given us the sun as a gift and it comforts us and it warms us. And if the writer of the Psalms is doing this and telling us these true things, but he's using poetry and he's using imagery and personification and similes, which is obviously what he is doing, then we have to say he's doing a really good job. He's doing a really good job to help us remember these things with pictures. He's telling us the truth. But he's telling us the truth through these other literary forms. If you were to flip it, how fair would it be to criticize Einstein's writing on relativity? By reading his book on relativity and saying, this stuff can't possibly be true, Einstein is a terrible poet. I mean, that'd be completely unfair to Einstein. Einstein would say, you can't judge my writings on relativity because of their poetic fluidity. I wasn't writing poetry. I was writing science. 
And equally, we can't judge the psalmist on the basis of science when he's saying, I'm not writing science. I'm writing poetry to teach you the truth of God in different language. Often, always, language is, is never able to completely capture the grandeur of who God is. And so that's often why we end up having to go to poetry and imagery. is because we grasp at words to try to explain something so beyond us. 1,600 years ago, the great church teacher Augustine wrote, Non-Christians know about the earth, the heavens, elements, motion, orbits, eclipses, and different kinds of animals, shrubs, stones, and so forth by reason and by experience. It is therefore, Augustine says, a disgrace and disgraceful and dangerous for non-Christians to hear a Christian presumably giving the meaning of Scripture, talking nonsense on these topics. Augustine goes on to say, we should take all means to prevent such an embarrassing situation in which people only laugh and scorn at our ignorance. Reckless and incompetent expounders of Scripture being un bring untold trouble and sorrow upon the wiser brethren. This is not a new issue. This is something that even 1,600 years ago, Augustine warned the church about. Richard Wright, in his book on biology, says, Science has no competence to deal with questions of supernatural forces. And religion, rightly, should leave to science the investigation of how the natural world works. The discipline of science and faith should not be at war, but should inform one another. I mean, this happens at a very everyday level too. For instance, as a pastor, uh, if someone comes to me with depression, I, in my area and stuff, I'll sit with them, I will talk with them, I will explore different issues where they may be struggling with things, maybe sin or doubt or loss in their life, and we'll be looking at it from kind of a, a, a spiritual and even psychological perspective. I'll pray with them. But at the same time, I will also always tell them that you need to go to see a doctor and have your thyroid checked serotonin levels and vitamin D levels checked. Not because it's either or, but because usually it's both end. And even what's happening to you spiritually and psychologically can even affect you biologically and vice versa. And so as pastors and doctors, we're not at odds with one another. We are working together because people are holistic. And therefore, we have different fields, but these multidisciplinary fields work together in regards to the truth. We need Christian scientists and Christian theologians who listen to one another. And when they do, we need that so that we can figure out how to take care of our environmental crisis that we are now in. How are we going to do that? We need science. But we also need to ask the question, why should we take care of our creation? That's a theological question. We need to answer that too. We, we need to ask questions to learn about how, how can we get to Mars? How could we actually do that? That's a science question. But at the same time, we need to ask ourselves, why should we get to Mars? Or maybe we shouldn't get to Mars. That's a theology question. 
How are we going to increase artificial intelligence? That's a science question. How do we do it? Why should we increase artificial intelligence? It's a theology question. We need to talk with one another. Faith and science are not the enemies. What I would propose is that the real enemy is when faith and science are isolated from each other. See, when that happens, we get either religious fanaticism, and with religious fanaticism, we get things like the Salem witch trials, we get things like Islamic terrorism, we get the killing of abortion doctors or the persecuting of gay people. And if we go to scientific fanaticism, then we get things like eugenics, Nazi experimentations, the harvesting of cells from aborted fetuses. Science without faith and faith without science is what brings untold suffering to humanity. The disciplines actually need one another. And therefore, and this is a challenge I'd love to throw out to all of our our youth, our college and career, even for us adults as well, we need Christians who will take up the godly vocations of being thoughtfully informed scientists and doctors and researchers, teachers and pastors and theologians. And by doing so, we will live out God's creation genesis mandate for us to be good stewards and good caretakers of his creation and of what it means to love and care for one another. There is no divorce between faith and science. And if God is calling you into the fields of research and science, I want to encourage you to pursue that and not let maybe some of the rhetoric you've heard either inside or outside of the church that's saying that you can't go there and be a Christian because that's a lie. And we need people in these fields who strongly Uphold both. If, if you want to do a little bit of research this week, just a, a, a huge uh, example of someone like that is a Francis Collins. I mean, we need more people like Francis Collins. Brilliant scientist. World-renowned brilliant scientist. But strong commitment to faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I want to pray right now for our own people here at Bethany and elsewhere, Lord, that you continue to give people gifts and talents and intellect and a mind and a, and a hunger for exploration. And that you affirm and call people, people of faith, to step into the realms of science and research and exploration. To do the hard and good work that needs to be done in those fields. And to recognize, Lord, that their faith can speak to science and the science that they do can inform their faith. And not only, Lord, help them to grow and mature in their own discipleship, but then, Lord, to bring back to the rest of us in the church what they've learned so that we too can grow. And we can be a light to the world in all areas, even in the world of science. Jesus' name, amen.